October, Friday the 13th, 1989, Jimmy Wade Martin's body was found on a street in the small town of Bonterre, Missouri. When there are witnesses, a murder weapon, and a taped confession, how exactly does a murder become a cold case? There was rumors going around like the next day. started doing a lot with Facebook. The question is, what happened to Jimmy Wade Martin? From Blueburn Productions, this is Small Town Forgotten. I'm your host, Chris Halsey. I think once we reached adulthood, we're like, you know, we started answering, or you know, once we had our own kids, and um, we just started questioning, like, what? We would ask my mom, like, what? Why are we here where we're at? Because it seems so, there was no justice ever. And my mom, like, really couldn't. She said, the only thing I can tell you is they told me um, whenever they dropped the charges of the person that they had thought did it, um, they said that they were gonna let the state take it over. And she said, I was 29 years old. I had twin girls that just lost their dad. I didn't know any better and I believed them. I wanna thank everybody for listening. This is the first episode of a real-time investigative podcast I'm not an investigator, I'm a father, and a husband, and a small business owner, but I wanted to do this to try podcasting to help people, to help people who don't have help, or who don't have a voice loud enough to get help. This case is personal to me, but I think it says a lot about all cold cases that happen in small towns. People are afraid to talk. Even in the early stages of research for this podcast, I've learned that people are scared, and this murder happened over 30 years ago. A young father was murdered, and there's still been no conviction. But someone in this small town knows something. Before we get into the case file, I need to tell you about Bonterre, Missouri. Bonterre is a small town about 62 miles south of St. Louis off Route 67. Maybe you've heard of it. Bonterre once had the largest lead mines in the world. In fact, National Geographic rated the Bonterre mines as one of the best adventures because you can take the world's largest freshwater scuba dive down into the abandoned mine shafts. Or maybe not. Maybe you just passed by it when you were going to another flyover town. Perhaps the bigger small towns of Farmington or Deloge nearby. In 1989, the population of Bonterre was less than 4,000 people, and it was 4.1 square miles. A marathon runner could run around the town without breaking a sweat. It had one stoplight and a chat dump in the center that rose 160 feet high. Don't know what a chat dump is? You must not be from Bonterre or any of the other neighboring towns in the mineral area. A chat dump is a large hill of rock fragments. Lead and zinc waste are just about the best toxic playground anyone will ever find. You can always orient yourself by where the chat dump is in relation to you. It was a beacon for the town, like a water tower. There's not a child alive in Bonterre who hasn't played on the chat dump. Bonterre means good earth. In the 80s and 90s when you drove into town, there was a welcome sign that read Bonterre, good earth, good people. 
You can't drive down the street without seeing someone you know. Everyone knows everyone or knows someone who knows the people you know. Six degrees of separation is a short game, especially in Bonterre. You know, everybody kind of knew everybody. There wasn't a lot of secrets there. And everybody knew each other and kind of, you know, had been around a long time with each other. And everybody had history. Um, and that led to, you know, uh, confrontations because everybody knew everything about each other. You couldn't keep a secret. And so lots of folks, um, you know, would, would kind of get into confrontations with each other. There's a lot of, saw a lot of fights. That was Brad Price, a Bonterre native who grew up just blocks from where this murder took place. In a small town, we do what most other Americans do for fun. We go to movies and restaurants, we go to bars, but because everyone knows everyone, there are not many secrets. And when people have a couple drinks, they blow off some steam by maybe getting into a fight. You have to understand something about Bonterre, or any small town. Fighting is just something that people do. On a weekend, you go out, have a good time, you have some beers, and you might get in a fight. You might go to the bowling alley, you have a confrontation, you take it out in the parking lot and have a fight. You might go to the football game on Friday night, you might have a confrontation, you take it out in the parking lot and have a fight. But there is a big difference between a fight and a murder. They usually ended up at the same bar, pretty relaxed, but every now and then they would get rowdy. And usually it was always the same crowds, you know, that went in there, the little locals. Never seen many out-of-town people come there. Yeah. I mean, everybody knew everybody. I mean, everybody knew everybody by their name in that bar. At night, they just got in. I don't even know what that fight was about. That was Peggy, a local woman who recently reached out to me with information about what happened that night. Fighting in that time, you know, growing up, it was all about a fair fist fight, if you will. Uh, it was not super violent. You didn't hear about people getting killed. Um, nothing like that around Von Terre for sure. Um, it was pretty quiet, and the fights were mostly just young men taking out aggression at the bar one night or even at the softball fields or the church parking lot sometimes. You know, it was just that kind of small town. And Jimmy Wade was no exception to this rule. He was reported to have been involved in a fight outside a bar in Von Terre. As I said, it's not uncommon or Jimmy, or anyone else. What is uncommon, unheard of in fact, is someone being killed. Hey Small Town Forgotten listeners, this is Todd Holsey. If you like the music you're hearing on Small Town Forgotten, check me out on Facebook at Todd Holsey Music. Give my page a like to get updates on what I'm doing. The Small Town Forgotten podcast is brought to you by Nukes Hot Sauce. Nukes Hot Sauce, an all-natural hot sauce company based out of Portland, Oregon. Spice up your meals with any of our four hot sauce flavors, ranging from mild, medium, to ultra-hot. Nukes has got you covered. Try us out. www.nukesauces.com. Use code SMALLTOWN for 10% off your order. N-E-W-K-S-Sauces.com. Code SMALLTOWN. I want to talk about what actually happened that night or what we know about what happened that night. A good place to start is the police report. And we have the police report that was made at that time. I'm going to omit some of the names of the witnesses, but both the officers and the suspect is public knowledge, so we're going to include those. They go something like this. 
At or about 12.07 a.m. on October 14, 1989, this reporting officer, Alan Goldsmith, and Sergeant Mallow were called to a fight at the Colbin Tavern on South Division Street. Trooper Sturtevant assisted. Persons in the bar stated that the fight was over and that the persons had left the area. At or about 12.16 a.m., these officers were called to a person lying on a sidewalk that appeared to be injured. Upon arrival, this officer exited the patrol vehicle and observed a white male lying in a profuse amount of blood. The man had several deep lacerations to the head. Sergeant Mallow then called the fire department rescue and ambulance. The scene was secured, witnesses were interviewed, and Trooper Sturdivant stood by for photography equipment to arrive. This reporting officer and Trooper Sturdivant located a landscape timber approximately 4 feet in length. The timber was approximately 43 feet from the body of Jimmy Martin. Near one end of the timber was a red substance that appeared to be blood. Also, stuck between the wood grains was dark colored hair. Jimmy Wade Martin was treated by the Bonterre Fire Department and taken by ambulance to the Mineral Area Regional Medical Center where he died of his injuries. Several reports indicated that a tall white male had fled the scene immediately after the incident. Another witness stated that three men were chasing another toward Mound Street. The man being chased, she stated, looked like a person that she had known from Potosi years ago, David White. This officer had been contacted by David White at the scene, who stated that he had witnessed the entire incident. David White appeared to be very disoriented and was taken home from the scene by Officer Stegall. At that time, David White gave no indication that he had taken part in the incident. At or about 11.48 a.m., Sheriff Cage showed several photographs to the witness, and the witness positively identified David White as the man being chased by Jimmy Martin. At or about 11.52 a.m., this officer contacted David White at his mother's residence. At or about 12.02 p.m., David White was read his Miranda warnings. At or around 12.03 p.m., David White confessed to being the person who had beaten Jimmy Martin on Mound Street. David White gave a taped confession before this officer, Sheriff Cade, Sergeant Armstrong, and Investigator Horn of the Prosecuting Attorney's Office. I should mention that David White is referred to most commonly as David Brian White, but I wanted to read the police report as is. Every time I read this, I have so many questions. Who is David Brian White? Why would he kill Jimmy Wade? Why was Jimmy Wade chasing him? Why would David go out of his way to say he witnessed Jimmy's murder when he was the murderer? How, if he confessed, was he not convicted? What happened to the four-foot landscape timber if it was the murder weapon? If there were so many people there, someone had to have seen what exactly happened. And who is the tall, slim, white male reported fleeing from the scene? Midnight is an anthology podcast series of uncompromising audio dramas using horror and the uncanny to explore the darkest corners of the American psyche. No issue plaguing our nation is off limits. Race, homophobia, violence, gun control. Every rock 
will be turned over and every nightmare confronted. From the twisted mind of writer Matt Pelfrey, these stories are full of uncomfortable content and are populated by flawed, desperate, and doomed humans who usually do and say the wrong thing with tragic consequences. You can listen to America After Midnight on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of your favorite podcast apps. Thank you. Now back to Small Town Forgotten. Hi, everyone. It's me, Katie Watkins. And me, Amber Khan. We're the co-hosts of Magic and Mythos. A deep dive into the history of magic with two modern mages. Join us as we talk about the history of magic from ancient Egyptian spellbooks to modern-day magical tools, voodoo queens, and pagan holidays. And every episode features a ritual, reading, or other offering you can take with you until the next one. Whether you've been performing spells for years or find yourself feeling a little witch-curious, you can find links to subscribe on our website, magicandmythospodcast.com. Until we meet again, remember, as above, so below. This is probably a good time to tell you why we picked this cold case. I've been interested, obsessed actually, with true crime for a long time. I was a big fan of the podcast Serial and Up and Vanished, and S-Town, and a bunch of other true crime podcasts. For a lot longer than that, I've been interested in this particular case. You see, Jimmy Wade Martin is a member of my family. Terre residents Frank and Cleta Martin gave birth to six kids, and those kids gave birth to 14 kids, and so on. Well, I'm a part of the so on. One of those 14 kids was Jimmy Wade Martin. And another one of those 14 kids was the producer and director of this podcast, Sean Lee Martin. So, you know, with social media, Chris, like we are connected to family members we are connected to to each other. And that's kind of like how I've been connected to Bonterre and a lot of my family is, is through social media. So, you know, all these years I've been kind of following what Andrea and Angela have been up to with their their dad's case. And I've been very impressed with what they're they're putting out into the world. They're actively going after justice for their dad. And I was kind of just observing this on social media. And then in 2015, you know, I reached out to them and said, hey, I would love to help support what you're doing. And uh, we had great conversations and they shared a lot of the work they've been doing at the time. So during these years, the past like, five years, you know, I have been kind of looking at the material and trying to put together a project and you know until you and i started talking over the summer about you know your podcast idea yeah so i'd already been ordering stuff for the podcast that i had already had planned and then once i think you listened to up and vanished and you basically sent me a message that said have i ever told you about the jimmy wade martin case and and that was it i was like i'm all ears you sent me some documents and we I think we talked for an hour that night. You know, you were like, I would love to help and I would love to be a part of this project. And your, you know, excitement about helping bring justice to the family and your connection to it, being a part of the family, knowing this affected, you know, you two, um, and knowing that, you know, if we work together, that we could help them bring justice to, to this case. I can remember my mom saying how much it affected the family. And I was so young at the time, I don't. I don't remember it specifically. I was only four or five years old, but 
what was that like for you being a teenager at the time when that happened? The family being just crushed. The only access we had to information on this case was what the Daily Journal was putting out. They were writing up, you know, about this investigation. And, you know, our family was just fed that information as to, well, there was an arrest made and, well, there's a murder weapon and there's this and there's that. Three days before the trial, it's thrown out. Why? Um, we didn't know. No one, no one knew. And here we are 31 years later. And, you know, like you said, I think there's now generations of people that have, that have grown up in Bonterra that have heard this story. Because I can specifically remember being early teenager and my mom showing me, saying, hey, our, my cousin was murdered right here. This is where our cousin Jimmy was murdered. And I, I can remember thinking, I, I didn't even know people got murdered in Bonterre at that time. I can remember telling people about that all through high school. Be like, oh yeah, my my mom's cousin was murdered and and nobody ever solved it. It happened in Bonterre. And what's so weird is the older I got, when I would tell that story, people people I knew would know about it. They were there and that that just kept blowing me away so when you brought up doing this as a project as a documentary and podcast specifically i was all in there there was no question i have now connected with people that i have not talked to since i was you know five years old um that are telling me stories that are telling me things that have happened um so it is interesting how facebook social media has amplified uh, Jimmy Wade's story. It's amplified Bon Terre and um, people are talking and, and people are talking more now than ever and I think that that was the goal with all of this was to, to get people talking. When I read through the information that we have on the case, all the names come up. I know somebody's nephew. I know somebody's son. I know somebody. Yeah, I mean, the connection in Bon Terre, I mean, in 1989, there was like less than 4,000 people that lived in the town. So we all knew each other. The people that were at the bar, they all knew each other. Bon Terre is a small town. That was also why it was so charming growing up there, because it, you, you knew everybody. What's up, True Crime Podcast listener? Hope you're enjoying Small Town Forgotten, a podcast that takes place in my hometown of Bonterre, Missouri. Whenever you need a break from the true crime genre, come on over and see us at Mostly Superheroes, a podcast that discusses TV and film, old and new, things like Airplane or Game of Thrones. We talk about it all. Come see us at MostlySuperheroes.com and listen where you get your podcast. Enjoy the rest of the show. Angela and Andrea are Jimmy Wade's twin daughters. They were only 11 years old when they found out that their father was killed. They are the strongest inspiration behind this podcast. I just remember as a kid um, how fun he was. I mean, he was he was great. Fun ain't even the word. He was crazy. Like, I mean, you know, my mom was so particular with our clothes and the hair bow had to match and matching shoes and they had to be clean and... If they weren't clean, she was trying to gather them all up to wash them, you know? And um, dad would be like, yeah, I want to jump in the river. He'd be like, go do ahead. It. I'm like, well, I mean, you can be in our clothes on. Yeah, and he's like, who cares? I'll deal with your mom, you know? And um, just funny, like, 
there's, I can't even, he was full, I mean, and you know, I mean, I don't know if you remember him that well, but just full of life. That's Andrea talking, and then Angela, and then Andrea again. They're identical twins, and they do that magical twin thing where they look at each other, and they have like a silent conversation, and then one of them will answer the question for both of them. They sound so much alike, and I've known them for a lot of years, but I still have trouble telling them apart. It was February 3rd, 1999. 91. Or 91. Sorry, I don't have my readers on. <laughs> um, prosecutor dismisses murder charge three days before trial. And their reasoning on that was because they didn't have any evidence? That was, that's the reason they gave? Um, I don't know if that's why they did it, but, you know, we knew before they announced it that because of that reason. Right. And, and Dave, um, Gary Stevenson, in the, in the case, is not ended by any stretch of the imagination. Angela and Andrea have been investigating their father's death for well over a decade now. They have this huge three-ring binder that's full of police reports and newspaper articles, journal entries, and clues that they've unearthed. We like to call it the Jimmy Bible, and it's big. A few weeks ago, they took a little time and went through it with me to show me what they'd gathered. 2007, this was when an article that went out, Twins Want Answers and Father's Death. So this was when you guys first really started digging deep. Yep. Yep. And... Um, what's this? Murder witnesses to be re-interviewed. Re that that was September, which never happened. I just have a calendar, to-do list, people I want to contact here. And then this here is my handwritten timeline. Just from the city of Montero's police reports to people I've talked to. Um, just we heard. Yeah, just a little bit of everything in there. I feel like I tell her what to do. She does. Like, I'm like, <laughs> always has. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, could you just call, um, like, in the next couple weeks, just make this phone call for me. And then I'll, you know, try to get as many calls in as I can. And I can't wait to talk to her whenever she gets off work. I'm like, you'll never leave what all I did today. And it's like... I feel like it's such an accomplishment when I do that. The girls are really nice. They're super friendly, but they're also super focused and they're really motivated. They love their dad. They miss their dad. They miss the times they had with him, but more than that, they miss the times that they didn't get to have with him. And even more than that, they miss the times that their kids don't get to have with him. It just really, really hits you, like how how young he really was. Mm -hmm. And you know, and it's, and the thing of it too, is my dad always wanted a boy. Well, you know, obviously he didn't get that. Um, and we both had boys. My son looks a lot like my dad. Yeah, we both had boys and that was, that was definitely hard. And then you, you ask yourself why, or you know, like, what if, what if, um, you know, here I sit at my kid's sports game I know my dad will be right beside me. What he asked me to make, he loved ham. What he want me to make him a ham sandwich? Or, you know, would he still like ham? Would he still like Dr. Pepper? And, you know, just things like that. Like, you just enjoy life and you you cherish those, you know, your family and the people close to you. And um, I just know, like, what, if he was such a, you know, if I have those great memories of him as a dad, just think of what kind of grandpa he would be. 
Andrea and Angela had set up a Facebook page years ago named Justice for Jimmy. When we first announced the podcast, we put out a video trailer on our website and various social media platforms. We received many comments and shares from supporters of their Facebook page. If you're looking at social media, you would think that everyone wants to help, but that does not tell the whole story. It doesn't tell you how difficult it's been for them to get answers. And it just seems so unfair that we've had to deal with the consequences or the things that they've done and their consequences are our problem, you know, and it shouldn't be that way. And it's still, you know, 30 years later and we have got absolutely no one to help us, no one. And then we feel like we get knocked down. We get, it, yeah. feel like, it feels like you get punched in the face and we get knocked down. And then it's like, um, then we get back up. We, you know, we, we get defeated. It's very like, defeated. It's like you try for something so hard and you want something so bad. And every avenue that you take, you it, get knocked down. You get knocked down. And after yeah. so many times, you stay down for a while. But, you, but then, like, you get, then, you, then you get up stronger. You get up fighting a little bit stronger. Yeah. You know, you want it more. You're more persistent. This is not just my story or the twins' story. This is a small town story. And I can't help but think we aren't the only small town to tell it. The girls understand, and we understand, that finding a conclusion to this case won't bring their father back. But it could bring justice. And justice could bring peace for them and the family. I want to help them get justice. Don't you? Next time on Small Town Forgotten. What happened to David Brian White? and the coroner report. That was the biggest thing for me my whole life. Since I was 11, I'm like, at least he didn't suffer. At least he didn't suffer. That was a lie. Because he suffered a lot. A lot more than I ever knew. And that, it, that hurt. That was deep. Small Town Forgotten is presented by Blueburn Productions, writer and executive producer Vanessa Martin, creative and executive producer Ashton Holsey, director and executive producer Sean Lee Martin, and myself, produced in association with Vagrant Media Productions. Brett Wiley, Jake Delaloy, Caleb Cook. Podcast distribution and digital strategy by Logan Janis with Kerrigan Ventures. Original music written and performed by Todd Holsey. For more information, please visit smalltownforgotten.com. Please like, follow, subscribe on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Special thanks to the twins, Andrea and Angela, for their inspiring perseverance. I'm your host, Chris Holsey. Thanks for listening to Small Town Forgotten.